Welcome to the Purposes of College Education podcast. Today we'll be discussing the role of conversation in education, and for that purpose, I'm joined by two of my students here at Yale, Claire Mahalik and Zadie Winthrop. Claire and Zadie, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Claire Mahalik, and I'm from Connecticut. I'm currently a sophomore in Morse College studying economics, and I'm also on the varsity women's swim team at Yale. Hi, everybody. My name is Zadie Winthrop. I am a first year here in Ezra Stiles. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and at Yale, I think I will study ethnicity, race, and migration, and history. Now, when you participate in higher education, you engage in conversation, both the literal discussions you may have with your professors teaching assistants, or fellow students about course material, and also a broader conversation that concerns the search for knowledge and for a shared understanding of the natural, social, and human world. Today, we'll explore this broad sense of conversation as a search for truth. We're going to look at two philosophers, one from ancient Greece and the other from 19th century England, Plato and John Stuart Mill. For both of them, conversation or dialogue played an important role in achieving knowledge. One common way of describing what you learn in college concerns broadening your horizons. This depends on a very powerful metaphor that compares understanding to seeing. Humans take in a lot of information through their eyes, and our ancestors, when they first went on two legs, often sought high spaces like hills from which they could look out and see approaching threats and defend themselves. In the history of thought, philosophers have often taken vision as the most basic form of understanding, but they've also called attention to the fact that appearances can be deceiving, and things are not always what they seem. We've seen that college sometimes resembles a journey, and many people in fact travel a good distance to get to college. As you travel, your horizon, what you can see, changes literally, But as you move away from home and encounter new people and new ideas, your horizon also changes metaphorically, in the sense that you see things from different or new perspectives, or at least you get the chance to compare what you've learned in your childhood with a new set of ideas that are generally not taught in high school. These new ideas may also be very different from the assumptions you inherited from your parents or imbibed from the broader culture. My student Claire echoes this idea. A lot of the conversations that I've had with uh, different friends has been really illuminating because I think that religion is often something that is very tied to your family's beliefs and coming to college allows you to challenge those as your own person. And so I've had very stimulating conversations about religious journeys and people finding their relationship with God or stepping away from it uh, as they step into their adult life. The conversations that take place in higher education contribute to the expansion of individuals' mental horizons. In an important book about historical interpretation, the German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer wrote about how we approach older texts, and he argued that the interpretation of an ancient text involves what he called the fusion of horizons, in which we try to understand the presuppositions of the world in which the older text was created and learn how they relate to our own presuppositions, our own horizon of expectations. In fact, another word for expectations that Gadamer uses is prejudice. We think of prejudice mostly in the negative sense of an unwarranted assumption people make about others who are different from them, but 
Gautamer uses it more neutrally, as in the unconscious assumptions we have about the world just because of who we are and the circumstances in which we grew up. For Gautamer, not only the interpretation of a text, but also any kind of dialogue or conversation involves openness to reassessing one's own prejudices or assumptions. Gautamer focuses on interpersonal and humanistic knowledge, but a similar process is at work in the testing of scientific hypotheses. Importantly, Gautamer argued that this work of interpretation takes place not only in relation to the past, but also to living cultures, which might mean people from another country or even just people from another neighborhood or another family who have different assumptions and expectations from our own. Gautamer emphasized that individuals and cultures are always open and their horizons are constantly changing. Just as the individual is never simply an individual, he wrote, because he's always involved with others, so too the closed horizon that is supposed to enclose a culture is an abstraction. The historical movement of human life consists in the fact that it is never utterly bound to any one standpoint, and hence can never have a truly closed horizon. In other words, what Gautamer is saying is that the work of understanding, and in fact even just the work of living in this world, involves a constant mental journey through time and space, in which one's views develop and one's horizons change. It involves a constant metaphorical conversation in which one questions one's own prejudices through encounters with others. And ideally, if we're open to growth, we can interact with people who have very different standpoints from our own and learn from this interaction. An important part of education is being exposed to views and ideas and even ways of life that challenge your preconceptions. This does not mean that you have to take on board every idea that your professors or fellow students propose to you. It's each student's job to approach the new ideas they encounter with an open mind, weigh these new perspectives and arguments, and come to their own conclusions about matters of great importance for them and for their future. The Victorian poet Tennyson created a beautiful image of the way that experience changes our point of view in his poem Ulysses. Ulysses was the Latin name of Odysseus, the wandering hero of Homer's Odyssey, and at the end of Homer's poem, Odysseus returns to his wife and son on the island of Ithaca. But Tennyson imagines him going back out to sea in search of even wider horizons, and he puts these words in the mouth of his Ulysses. I am a part of all that I have met. Yet all experience is an arch wherethrough gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. The fading margin of the untraveled world reflects the desire of the hero always to journey further in search of new experiences to expand his or her horizons. We'll ask whether conversation with others in an educational setting can similarly help young people to expand their horizons. Or to put it somewhat more concretely, what are the distinctive advantages of learning through conversation? So, Zadie and Claire, you took my course last semester on purposes of college education, and one of the themes we talked about was conversation. So, Tell us, what comes to mind when you think about conversation as it relates to your academic experience at Yale so far? Conversation is very cool and kind of in alignment with what John Stuart Mill says, because you get to, in community with the people around you, sort of come to a collective agreement. At Yale, 
one of my sort of all-time favorite things, and I found this to be lovely, especially the fall of my, you know, first year when you're getting to know people, has been hearing about people's backgrounds, like where they're from, where their family is from, how that impacts their life, what they care about, I think is all just super duper interesting. And I think Yale is probably the most diverse space that I have ever been in. And so I think it's been a really wonderful opportunity to learn about so many different ways that people have grown up. And I, I think I tend to ask a lot about, you know, what people are coming from and everything. And I think that's been really fun. So, Claire, what do you think about this? These classes allowed me to engage in conversations with my classmates where I could really challenge notions that I had. I think that conversations that I have with my peers, whether they be my teammates on the swim team or friends that I've met through my residential college or other social groups on campus have been extremely foundational in helping me grow into the person that I am today. With my teammates, we have a very deep bond through swimming and I've had really great conversations with friends and teammates about religion, relationships, and how to manage other priorities, both as a student and an athlete at Yale and looking into my future, how I want to shape my life. One of the most famous images relevant to education arrives in the seventh of the ten books of the Republic, when Socrates introduces the idea that we all live in a world of shadows, but that education brings us out into the light. You may recognize this as a very influential metaphor, or allegory, for education. This is a crucial example of the metaphor of vision as understanding, and it also relates to the idea that we come to understand truth by probing behind appearances, and abandoning our prejudices in the light of reason. In Book 7, Plato has Socrates tell the following story. See human beings as though they were in an underground cave-like dwelling, with its entrance, a long one, open to the light across the whole width of the cave. They are in it from childhood with their legs and necks in bonds, so that they are fixed, seeing only in front of them unable, because of the bond, to turn their heads all the way around. So in other words, in this image, people are kept from birth in this cave with only a little sunlight filtering in. People sit facing forward in bonds, unable to move, staring right in front of them, as if they were in an auditorium or a movie theater. Because of the change, they're unable to turn their heads around, so they can't tell where the sounds and lights are coming from. Plato continues. Their light is from a fire burning far above and behind them. Between the fire and the prisoners, there's a road above along which we can see a wall built like the partitions puppet handlers set in front of the human beings and over which they see the puppets. Then also see along this wall human beings carrying all sorts of artifacts which project above the wall. Now Socrates says before we're educated, our life is like that of the prisoners. We only see the appearances of things the shadows cast by the puppets. But truth, according to Plato or Socrates, is a reality that lies above and beyond the appearances of this world. Plato has Socrates represent education in the following way. One prisoner, taken out of his chains, is dragged into the light, pulled up the aisle of the auditorium, as it were, and taken out into the sunlight after having lived in this dim darkness all his life. And Plato says that when such a man was dragged into the light, he would not be able to see anything at first. The sun would be too bright for his eyes. In fact, he would hold that truth is nothing other than the shadows of artificial things that he used to see in the cave. That's all he's seen his whole life. 
But education or philosophy is like going out into the sunlight after having been stuck looking at mere reflections or shadows your entire life. And Socrates says, If someone dragged a man who was released away from them by force along the rough, steep, upward way, and didn't let him go before he dragged him out into the light of the sun, wouldn't he be distressed and annoyed at being so dragged? So for Plato, education or the pursuit of wisdom is like being exposed to the sun when the only things you've seen before are shadows. Philosophy or education shows us the true reality of things instead of the mere shadows that we've grown up with. And education can in fact be distressing in this way because it, it, it's hard to face the light of truth. It involves giving up many of the prejudices or assumptions you may have grown up with. Do you remember a time when something you learned or an experience you had in a classroom sort of shocked you or made you feel uncomfortable? I remember during one discussion section for bioethics and law, we had a mock debate about abortion, and our section was split into two arbitrarily, and one group had to argue um, for abortion and one against it, whether or not that aligned with their personal beliefs. And that was a very eye-opening conversation because it was something that in my personal life I've felt pulls from both sides and it was really interesting to hear a lot of other people's perspectives to hear someone say something that was like wow I can't believe they just said that out loud and it was in a mock debate environment so it was obviously very open and we were arguing for things that we didn't necessarily personally believe but that definitely helped me to challenge my beliefs your case of your abortion debate was an interesting one. Do you ever just throw out an opinion that you don't believe just to say, hey, this is an interesting opinion to consider or something I heard on TV or that, that my cousin said to me or something like that? I will definitely play devil's advocate. I think that it's a great way to pick people's brains and get good feedback. There are three main themes I'd like to take from Plato's allegory of the cave that are relevant for higher education today. The first is that education involves questioning the assumptions or prejudices you've had since childhood, what Plato represents as the shadows on the wall of the cave. Now, this metaphor may seem elitist in the sense that people who doubt the value of education might ask, why whatever you're learning from your books and lectures is of more value than, let's say, a TV show or a TikTok video or any other source of information? Higher education is based on participation in the conversation of rational knowledge, that is, inquiring into things and not just rote memorization. What we learn at college or university is how to question assumptions and use evidence and analysis to understand the nature of reality, rather than just repeat what we've been told. I think the strongest defense of Plato's allegory is to recognize that through hard study and inquiry, one can come to understand reality in a way that goes beyond mere common sense or assumptions. And a lot of the anti-elitist view of higher education overlooks the fact that higher education does involve this more intensive conversation and study. The second relevant point about the allegory of the cave concerns the gap that opens up between the educated and the rest of society and that today contributes to this anti-elitist feeling about education. There's a risk of assuming, as Plato sometimes seems to do, that those with more education are wiser and morally better than others. And in fact, you do see that among educated people even today. In fact, Plato thinks that the educated alone should rule. This anti-democratic assumption would not be accepted on its face by very many people today, even if sometimes people implicitly endorse it. It doesn't fit with our modern moral assumptions about every person's equal worth. 
That said, Plato points out the problem that those who received an education may to some extent be alienated from the rest of their community because they've come to see the world in a new or different way. So conversely, we see in our own time a resentment against science and research that leads, for example, to many people ignoring doctors, medical scientists, and public health professionals. For education, in a modern society to be effective, those who are educated need to be able to communicate with those who lack education without condescending to them or dismissing their ideas. This is actually where Plato seems to be on the right track when he talks about the philosopher sharing the labors of those who are still chained in the cave. Finally, Plato represents the path towards learning as a steep path up which someone has to drag the learner. This image makes sense if you assume that there's a teacher who already knows the truth and a student who needs to learn it. The teacher drags the student into the light. But Plato's own method in his dialogues, what we sometimes call the Socratic method, shows that learning does not always depend on the teacher conveying information to the student. In fact, Plato often demonstrates truth as the result of conflicts among different points of view represented by characters in his dialogues who are based on real contemporaries of Socrates. As Plato suggests, learning often happens through dialogue in which the teacher and the student have a conversation that leads them both to new insights. This kind of learning, sometimes also called dialectical or dialogic from the word dialogue, recognizes that the path towards truth is not a simple passage straight into the light, but is rather a convoluted or spiraling pathway. Much great learning happens in solitude, exemplified by the famous but probably apocryphal story of Sir Isaac Newton discovering gravity after being hit on the head by an apple. In fact, though a great deal of discovery and learning takes place through dialogue or conversation or shared effort as in a laboratory, we come to understand each other's viewpoints and wind up with a richer picture of the world than we had before. Sometimes this kind of conversation can be uncomfortable. Zadie, can you think of a similar time when you had a sort of shocking experience in class? I have learned things that I think have been sort of totally shocking to me. I think in my, I took intro to ERNM, Ethnicity, Race, and Migration, um, last semester. And my professor, his name was Daniel Hosang, um, and I felt that he would sort of go through kind of social relations and all these different things in ways that were just fascinating. And I, I think a particular example that he brought up that I think about um, is he talked about affirmative action and how, you know, one of the key arguments for affirmative action is that diversity is sort of beneficial to everybody um, and people learn better in diverse environments. You know, you get to hear other people's perspectives. It helps you refine your perspective, kind of what we're talking about now. But one thing he talked about is how that can sort of create a social relationship where students of color when applying to college feel like the way, you know, affirmative action kind of puts them in a position where what they give to the university is their identity. And he talked about how in the classroom and in academic and social settings in college, it can be really interesting to see students of color sort of feel this obligation to like inform or teach their peers about social issues as sort of fulfilling what they feel like they maybe subconsciously came here or were granted this opportunity to do. That's great. Do you think we put too much emphasis on identity in like our college application essays and that kind of thing? No, I, I don't think so. I think that identity is an important part of how people navigate their lives. You know, it's a very important part of my own personal way of like placing myself in the world. And I think affirmative action is a good thing and important. And I do think diversity does benefit everybody. But I also think that it's worth considering how that can create a sort of challenging social dynamic in some settings. Mm -hmm. 
our modern ideas of education generally differ somewhat from Plato's because they emphasize two values of the liberal political tradition, freedom and equality. This liberal tradition goes back to the 17th century English philosopher John Locke and the wars of religion in early modern Europe. I will focus on one of the most famous 19th century liberals, John Stuart Mill, who in his book On Liberty emphasized especially the freedom of thought and speech and its necessity for the development of knowledge. The broad theme of Mill's On Liberty is that the government and society should as much as possible leave people free to do as they like. This is an essential tenet of modern liberalism, and it differs fundamentally from Plato's view of a hierarchical society ruled by philosopher kings. In particular, with respect to freedom of speech, Mill writes, If all mankind minus one were of one opinion, and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. Now, the United States has a Bill of Rights, which was a set of amendments to the original U.S. Constitution and drew on English law of the 18th century. The first of these amendments states, among other freedoms, that the U.S. Congress may not make a law abridging or restricting freedom of speech. Partly as a result of the First Amendment, the United States has a strong conception of free speech. But for the most part, modern democracies tend to recognize freedom of speech and also their related freedoms of the press, of assembly, and of religious belief, although it's interpreted differently in different modern democracies. The exact nature of freedom of speech has been debated a great deal in the past 250 years, and Mill wrote his On Liberty to defend a very strong interpretation of free speech, one in which it is simply not permissible to prevent someone from expressing an opinion, even if the opinion is wrong, or is held by only one person, or even if the opinion is offensive to other people. Now, I'd like to give you a little bit of background on Mill. He was the son of the well-known philosopher James Mill, who was one of the founders of University College London. Unlike Oxford and Cambridge, University College was open to students who did not belong to the Church of England, and along with his colleague Jeremy Bentham, whose mummified corpse you can actually still visit at University College London, James Mill was one of the creators of the philosophy known as utilitarianism, which is a sort of democratic philosophy that emphasizes achieving the greatest good for the greatest number. Of course, a lot of interesting questions arise about how to count happiness. You could make lots of people happy by making just a few people unhappy. Would that be okay? Or is it okay to lie or cheat if it makes another person happier? Or whether the happiness of reading a book is better than the happiness of baking bread or having dinner with friends or scrolling through your social media feed? These are issues that have been debated endlessly by utilitarian philosophers. Nonetheless, James Mill's utilitarianism places an emphasis on making people in general happier, and this to some extent underpins John Stuart Mill's, his son's, liberalism, which is an egalitarian philosophy that emphasizes making everyone free and equal. Now, James Mill was a demanding father, and he encouraged his son to learn Greek when he was only three. In John Stuart Mill's autobiography, he tells the story of all the reading and mathematics he did as a teenager and how, at the age of 20, he suffered a sort of nervous breakdown. Partly as a result of this experience, John Stuart Mill developed a philosophy that differed somewhat from that of his father. In a sense, his autobiography is a story of a failed philosophy of education, and it's very interesting reading today when there's so much pressure on young people to strive and succeed. For John Stuart Mill, forcing a young child, no matter how brilliant, to read so many books and memorize so much information involved ignoring the child's spiritual development. 
and John Stuart Mill instead embraced English romantics like the poet William Wordsworth, who believed that life was about learning how to express one's innermost spiritual being, the kind of thing that could not easily be measured by utilitarian calculus. Mill's notion of liberty, as we'll see, is not just about getting to say or think what you want, but also in a sense about being able to explore new ways of living. Mill refers to Plato and Socrates, and in particular emphasizes the idea that truth is reached not by a straightforward path, but through a conflict among opposing opinions. His defense of liberty of thought and discussion is closely linked to his notion of where truth comes from. So he writes, Truth in the great practical concerns of life is so much a question of the reconciling and combining of opposites that very few have minds sufficiently capacious and impartial to make the adjustment with an approach to correctness. And it has to be made by the rough process of a struggle between combatants fighting under hostile banners. In other words, it's through what Mill represents as a battle of ideas that we get closer to truth. And you might think of the battle in his mind between the practical utilitarianism of his father and the romantic expressivism of Wordsworth as a key example of this. To some extent, Mill's ideas, especially as presented in On Liberty, emphasize freedom more than equality. But more relevant, I think, to the theme of education is a notion he has about social pressure. He writes that it is important that people be allowed to pursue a variety of lifestyles. So he writes, as it is useful that while mankind are imperfect, there should be different opinions, so is it that there should be different experiments of living, that free scope should be given to varieties of character, short of injury to others, and that the worth of different modes of life should be proved practically when anyone thinks fit to try them. And in a sense, although there, this is not a point that Mill makes, we can think of life during college as an example of what he calls experiments in living. It's a time when young people experiment with the different kinds of relationships they want to have. It's often a time when they experiment with drugs and alcohol, and it gives them the opportunity to figure out what kind of character they want to have. Of course, colleges have rules, and they also often have ways to protect students from some of the consequences of their actions. So, at least for those who go to elite residential colleges, they're in a sense enabled to undertake what we might call controlled experiments in living that are not always available to everyone in a society. And here is Claire with her own experiment in communal living. I personally live in an all-female suite, but some of my suite mates are in relationships, and so there are definitely guys around. And I've definitely woken up and gone to the bathroom in the middle of the night wearing an oversized T-shirt and been met with a male who I was not expecting to see. Are there distinct advantages or even disadvantages to learning through conversation? Well, I, I know we talked about some advantages, um, before. Uh, I think some other advantages are, you know, broadening your perspective. It helps you think about things sort of outside of yourself, which I think can be a little bit hard and is very valuable. As for some maybe potential disadvantages, I was bringing this up with some friends yesterday and people were listing some good ones that I thought maybe I could share. Somebody said it's inefficient, you know, seeking truth or knowledge through conversation. You have to hear a lot of not great ideas in order to hear the good ideas, and that can be frustrating and feel like a waste of time, um, was one. Another one, which I was thinking about too, is sort of the whole idea of a marketplace of ideas. You know, not everybody's ideas are valued the same, or 
you know, in, in some ways we think about aspects of identity that prevent some people from being heard in the way that they should. But in another way, we have introverts, you know, um, that's kind of another way that what you hear is, you know, you're not always getting to hear everything that people are thinking or um, accessing information. It's not, not everybody's in the same position with regard to their openness to share. Mills on Liberty provides an incredibly important model for thinking about the role of the individual in relation to society, and it provides a strong defense of freedom of expression. It also makes four interesting and important points in favor of free speech. I'll summarize those points in concluding this discussion of Mill. Mill anticipates that people will object to his notion of liberty at a number of points, particularly concerning the possibility that if people are free to say what they want, they may say things that are untrue or offensive to the majority of people or that may weaken social harmony. To these kinds of objections, he responds with four reasons not to restrict free discussion of controversial ideas. First, he says, the opinion that you are suppressing might be a true opinion, and as he writes, to deny this is to assume our own infallibility. Second, he says, even if not entirely true, the silenced opinion may contain a portion of truth. And this goes back to Mill's notion that truth is arrived at by contrasting opposite opinions, and if one half or even a smaller fraction of all the opinions are not voiced, then it will be harder to reach truth. Third, he says, even if the general opinion is correct, it is still a received opinion or a prejudice, a little like the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave, unless it can stand up to vigorous challenges. So ignoring opposing opinions, even if they are wrong, weakens our own grasp on truth. And finally, along the lines of his objection to requiring people to claim they believe in God, he says that if we do not allow our received opinions to be contested, they will become mere formal professions. That is to say, people will claim to believe in them just because that is what everyone says they believe and won't hold these beliefs consciously or actively. These opinions then become something like superstitions or shibboleths, believed or professed without being examined. In Mills on Liberty, we see a strong defense of freedom of speech and debate, as well as other freedoms relating to religion and lifestyles. As I mentioned, Mill is an important part of the liberal tradition, and in On Liberty, he emphasizes the dimension of liberalism that is concerned with freedom or liberty. Some current liberals and progressives may find that he therefore underestimates the importance of equality, and in particular the risk that totally free speech may cause offense or even harm to certain groups, especially racial, religious, and sexual minorities. In the next episode, we'll discuss some current controversies around academic freedom and how these play out in college education today. This podcast was produced by Belinda Platt with the help of research associate Lizzie Contiras and sound engineer Ryan McAvoy. I'd like to thank my guests, Zadie Winthrop and Claire Mahalik. We've now launched the Purposes of College Education podcast, so join us again next time.